Let's get started. Now we've been studying the book of Esther. So a quick reminder. Uh, Esther was a Jew who became queen of Persia. She was chosen by the king Xerxes. Some of your translations may say Ahasuerus, and I'm going to say Xerxes because it's easier. Uh, Haman, who was the enemy of the Jews, became enraged uh, when Esther's cousin Mordecai would not bow down to him. So Haman determined that he would not just punish Mordecai, but that he was actually going to seek the slaughter of all of the Jews in Persia. So he hatched his plot. He convinced the king to sign a law that would command the killing of all the Jews on a certain day. And that day had not yet come. Uh, This book of the Bible is about God protecting his people, his perfect timing, his plan. He placed Esther in a position of power and influence to use Esther for his purposes. Uh, There's a really important verse where Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't do this, If you don't stand up and save our people, God's going to use someone else. Someone else, something else will happen. Our people will still be saved, but this is the reason that you are where you are. So God will save his people, but in this particular instance, he's using Esther, who he put in a position of power and influence. Uh, Last week we learned about Haman's decision to go to the king first thing in the morning to request the execution of Mordecai. Now, Haman was feeling pretty good about himself. He had been invited to the queen's feast. So it's him and the royal couple feasting. He's very important. He's feeling feeling very good about himself. So he goes ahead and builds himself a nice tall gallows in his front yard, and he's going to go ask the king, since he's so popular right now, go ahead and let me kill Mordecai. Um, I'm going to hang him in my front yard and show the world what happens when you make Haman mad. That's his goal. But God had another plan. Xerxes the king couldn't sleep that night. So he requested his servants read from the Chronicles of Memorable Deeds. Uh, And when reading, he was reminded that Mordecai had saved his life. And nothing was done for Mordecai. There was no honor. Now it's possible the king didn't even know that Mordecai saved his life, and it was just written here, so this is the first time he heard about it. That's possible. So when Haman came that morning to request Mordecai's death, instead, Xerxes commanded him to parade this man through the streets of Susa with the king's own robe and the king's own horse, declaring, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman's not having a very good day. Um, God works in mysterious ways. He kept the king awake. He led the servants to that particular chapter. I'm sure this book was thick, and and they just happened to go to that one chapter. And all of that just in time when Haman was planning on making this request to kill Mordecai. God's timing is perfect. Now we pick up our study on on the same day. That morning he had paraded Mordecai around the city. Um, this is going to be the second feast that Esther puts on for Xerxes and Haman, on which she's finally going to make her request of Xerxes that her people, the Jews, would be saved from Haman. Uh, Xerxes and Haman are both unaware that Esther is a Jew, and they're unaware of what her request is. They have no idea. Today we're going to see that no matter what the circumstances, God's plans are always carried out, and his plans include protecting his people. His will overrides man's pride, man's foolishness, man's plans 
Man's resolve and man's earthly power. God overrules all of that 100% of the time. We're also going to see that the pride of Haman, that he would even consider the destruction of God's people, that pride that led to his violence led directly to his downfall. So his pride and his violence led to his violent end. And now after all of that, we're going to take a few minutes, we're going to change course and talk a little bit about Palm Sunday. Uh, But first, before we continue our study in Esther, let's ask the Lord to give us some wisdom and guidance this morning. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for all these fantastic holidays that uh, we get to remember what he did for us, his life, his birth, um, his death, his resurrection, um, his triumphal entry. Uh, Father, please, uh, please help us to understand uh, fully what all these things mean so that we might glorify you and your son better. Um, help us this morning to have wisdom and guidance. Um, sometimes these narrative, narrative texts um, can just seem like great stories and it it's, can be hard to pull out the applications, Lord. I just pray that you'd uh, help us to understand what you would have us uh, understand of your will from this text. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Haman has just come from this humiliating event, this reversal. Uh, rather than supervising Mordecai's execution, he was forced to parade him through the streets. At home, his wife and his friends predict his personal ruin, which obviously uh, led to further anxiety for him. And then he's rushed off to dine with the king and queen for a second time. Uh, we'll start in Esther 7, 1 through 4. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold... I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So, the queen's banquet followed the same routine as the previous day, which we spoke about. They dined, I'm sure the courses were very extravagant, And then they retired to the wine course. Haman, at this point, probably regained his calm. Sure, he had been embarrassed, but Mordecai's at the gate. And I'm in here with the royal family for a second day in a row. Once again, the king asks, uh, what is Esther's request in this very formal language of the court? Now, Riley mentioned two weeks ago that, that he's not being literal here. He's not saying... I will literally give you up to half of my kingdom. It's kind of a pompous, prideful way of saying, I could give you anything. Uh, But the point is that the listener is supposed to understand that he doesn't mean that literally. That this did get him in trouble a few times where a petitioner then asked too much of him. Um, then, Then that challenges his public pride. And again, Xerxes is a very prideful man. However, Esther was shrewd and wise she was not going to test the king's generosity. Uh, She was going to show patience. She had a well-thought-out plan. She was not going to be asking too much. The queen asking the king for this one thing is not too much to ask. Uh, But she was going to go about it in a humble way, not a demanding one. 
Now, she knew the king's temperament. He had uh, killed his first wife, right? He could be rash and illogical. And I'm sure that she was afraid that her plan could turn against her. But the point was that she was going in with faith. If I die, I die. So Esther's response was careful when he asked. She began with, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. So she's being courteous. She's being humble. She's not presuming on his goodwill. And then she, she goes on to say, Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Now, note how she's using the king's words. So the king asked her, What is your wish and what is your request? And he means, What is your one request that is your wish? But she responds with two requests. My wish is that my life be spared and my request is that my people be spared. Now, by phrasing her petition this way, what she's done is that she has inseparably identified herself with her people. This is one request for two things. My life, my people's life. She's not asking just for her own life, which she could have done. It probably would have been much simpler. But she's also asking for this people group and she's identifying herself with them. At this point, Xerxes probably didn't know she was a Jew. Now, it's a little subtle, but she's revealing her heritage here. The king probably did understand exactly what she was saying. She's taking this great risk in revealing herself and her heritage. The king may have had no love for the Jews. Maybe he had been influenced by Haman and his hatred. Maybe this is all going to turn around when he realizes that she's a Jew, and he's going to feel duped. Now, at this moment, uh, some commentators think that uh, the king is stunned to silence, uh, that he's kind of grasping the moment. So you're saying you're a Jew? And so Esther moves quickly, not allowing a response to this revelation. She explains that she and her people had been sold for destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. Now, if you compare our text, which is Esther 7.4, and Esther 3.13, which is the edict <clears throat> to kill all the Jews, you'll notice that it's, it's actually word for word. It's the exact language. She's saying, my people are being sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to, to be annihilated. What the edict says is to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews. But again, Esther's being very careful in this explanation because the king is also implicated in this unjust decree. But she carefully words her explanation in the passive voice. She's actually avoiding the direct reference to the king, even though he's the one who signed it into law. Now, she didn't want to indict the king, even though, if we're honest, he's probably uh, just as much to blame. She's going after the man who convinced him that this was a good idea. She's not trying to indict the king, so she's very careful. Uh, You'll notice more and more that she's kind of feeding into his mind, the way that he works. He's prideful, he's rash, he's arrogant, and she knows exactly how to talk to him. She added that if it had just been a matter of selling them as slaves rather than killing them, she wouldn't have even troubled the king with that petty problem. Because if they had been sold, king, you know, then, then you gain financially, and that's good for you. But all your subjects being killed, that's actually bad for you, king. That's, that's going to harm you economically. So again, she's making this an issue of the king's personal pride and to an extent the king's finances. So it's making it an issue for him, not for her. 
She's also communicating to him how important she knows he is. You're so important that if my entire people group was sold into slavery, wouldn't even mention it to you because you're so important. Um, but she also knows by her statements that he's telling him that his queen is being set up to be murdered by Haman. That's a personal affront to the king and who he is, to his honor, to his public pride. You can't let your own queen be killed by one of your servants. Let's move on to verses 5 and 6. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now the king's reaction here is exactly what Esther's looking for. She wants wrath, and that's what she got. This is a man of quick temper. He's feeling that this plot to kill the Jews, which included his wife, was a personal affront to his kingship, to who he is. Now, he may have forgotten that he had signed this. From the text, it seems like he does not recall uh, signing this thing. He's acting like he has no idea what she's talking about. Now, it could be that he actually forgot that he forgot the signing away of thousands and thousands of lives just as easily as he agreed to sign the thing in the first place. That is possible. Again, arrogant, prideful man focused on number one. Or he may have felt duped by the whole thing, and he's just saving face here. He's playing along because he realizes, ah, I did that. Now, legitimately, he really could feel like he was being tricked because if you read chapter 3, Haman doesn't actually refer to the Jews by name. So it's possible that the king just didn't know which people group he was signing a death warrant for. Again, still terrible, but it's possible. Now I want us to, to take a moment and, and think of Haman. Um, all we hear is that Haman is terrified. So I kind of want us to get in his mind for a, mo for a moment. So he's been invited to these two banquets. He's very honored. He's feeling very pompous. He's very important. He might have thought that Esther intended him to be part of whatever this request was. Unfortunately, he didn't fully appreciate what he was hoping for. So he's thinking, whatever her request is includes me. I'm the big man. I'm so important. And then verse 3, and she starts to describe her request, and he's getting a little confused. And then verse 4, and he, she quotes his edict, and it starts to become clear exactly what's going on. He pushed the king to sign the death sentence of his own queen. And I'm thinking, what would it be like to be Haman in that moment? The snake is cowering. I'm sure he's sweating. The color is leaving his cheeks. That smug, pompous smile is starting to fall. He starts to see the writing on the wall. And then Esther proclaims very clearly... A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman is terrified. Esther answers the king very clearly. Who would dare to do such a thing to you personally, O king? This enemy, this wicked man, your foe, Haman. You see how she, how she words it? It's now the king's foe. It's the king's enemy. This wicked man has duped you. Now, Haman is speechless with fear. The king is a man of quick temper. 
I'm a little surprised he didn't just strangle the guy on the spot, to be honest. The text says that he was terrified before the king and queen. The word translated terrified could actually be dumbfounded, left catatonic, speechless. He understood his fate was being sealed before his eyes. His life, his plans, his plots, all flashing before his eyes. And all of it falling apart by the proclamation of Esther. And I want to take a moment and remind us that the point of this whole story is that God is in control. We're seeing it from the perspective of human beings, but God is the one who's controlling. Uh, Do we think that man is the one who's doing all this? Is Esther just that convincing? And Xerxes just happened to be in just the right mood? No. God set all of this up. It could have gone another way. Xerxes could have been furious at her keeping her heritage from him. He could have been furious that she's playing him like a fiddle. But instead, God moved him exactly the way that God desired him to go. And God used Esther exactly the way he desired to use Esther. Let's move on to some of my favorite verses. Esther 7 through 10, the downfall of Haman. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the, to the palace where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king... They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Again, the king, known for his fits of rage, he's kind of a baby, actually, walks away. So you know, men, when you're really angry and you just have to walk out of the room, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, Unlike when he was embarrassed by his last wife publicly, he didn't have any counselors to advise him on the right way to go. Instead, one of his most trusted advisors is the one that he's furious at. So he's probably walking away either to calm down before he does something too rash, or to consider his options. Could he really punish a man who is carrying out an edict that he signed? Should he have him killed? Should he have him in prison? Should he have him publicly whipped? What's the right thing to do here? Or is Haman the one in the right here? So he's thinking it through. But Haman doesn't have any, any issues considering the outcome here. Haman knows exactly what's going on. He's not confused. He knows the king's thinking it over, but he knows there's only one outcome here. He's dead. Haman knows that. It literally says in the Hebrew, he saw that the evil was complete for him from the king. His life was forfeit, and he knew it. Now, it shouldn't escape our notice that Haman's journey from arrogant hatred to callous violence and murder began when a Jew would not bow down to him. And now that his life is on the line, what is he doing? He's groveling to a Jew. 
Haman, with incredibly poor timing, falls before the queen, again a Jew, that he hates, on the couch to beg for his life. Now, unfortunately, Haman had forgotten in his fear that there was rules, there were decorum about these sorts of things. In Persia at that time, no man other than the assigned eunuchs and the king could come within seven paces of a harem woman or the queen. And now he's fallen all over trying to beg for his life. He's probably grabbing her feet and crying. So the king returns from his brooding at that very moment and exclaims, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? The word assault should probably be translated molest. He's saying, will he even sexually assault my wife in my house? Now, immediately when the king says this, it says that the servants grab Haman and cover his face. Uh, Probably that was a sign that this was a man going to execution. Just the accusation from the king's mouth meant he dies. There's no consideration. There's no trial. The servants knew he has to die. The king's proclamation was a death sentence. Now Esther, you'll notice, is being silent. She's looking on in all decorum. Uh, One commentator suggested that at that time, when there was a, a breach of etiquette in this way, that it would be right and proper for her to remain silent and not to say anything. So she is the picture of all wisdom and decorum, as a, and then compared to Haman, who is a frightened fool, who's forgetting himself. Now, one of the king's eunuchs in 7.9, Harbona, offers up this great piece of advice. Now, I want to mention that it seems to me that Esther was popular with the servants. There's a few uh, opportunities in the book, if you take a look, where servants help her, eunuchs give her advice. Um, So what I think happened here is that Harbona happens to be someone who really likes Esther because she's a good queen. Uh, Maybe she's very kind to him. And so he steps up to make sure that the queen's enemy is killed in true justice. And so he mentions to the king that this Haman, he built gallows in his front yard to kill Mordecai. That's the guy that this morning you publicly honored. And this man's planning on killing him. And that's going to be an embarrassment for the king. So if the king had, had thought, maybe I'm going to give a little bit of mercy here, that's out the door now. It's just stacked up, stacked up. His pride cannot allow all of this to, to be unpunished because the servants are going to talk about it, right? So what does he say? Hang him on that. Xerxes needs no more evidence. He needs no discussion. He just orders him hanged on his own gallows. Now, there's no mention of the time frame here, if he was put in dungeons first or tortured, but probably it was immediately. That's the way the text reads. So the servants just took him away to his house and hanged him right there. Um, Now, it should not escape our notice that Haman, again, being hanged on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, in his yard... So his family, his friends, his neighbors, everyone walking by sees Haman hanging on the gallows that he was telling everyone was for Mordecai. Now, there was a custom at that time that when someone was being executed, they normally they put a sign up they, or they had someone there telling everyone 
why this person is being executed. So it doesn't say it in the text, but my imagination runs wild, and I think it read, Haman, who plotted the death of the Queen Esther and Mordecai, whom the king honored, who are both Jews. God is also making a statement here. Publicly. Now, it may have been King Xerxes who commanded the men to execute the wicked Haman, but it was God who willed it to be. It was God who moved all of this in history. God was telling all who saw Haman hanging, I will protect my people and justice will be swift for those who seek them harm, for those wicked men. The text also says that Xerxes' fury was abated with Haman's death. Now that word abated is the same word that you find in Genesis 8.1 when the waters of the flood receded. So his anger was gone. As soon as Haman was dead, his wife was safe, his pride was in place, his anger is gone. He is pleased. Now, his rage was based in the affront to his queen and to his personal honor and pride. It had nothing to do with the danger to her people. He hasn't fixed that problem yet, but he's happy. He's done. So the king just seemed unaware of the greater implications here. He has a duty to resolve the problem. Uh, So in the next chapter, in chapter 8, we're going to find that Mordecai and Esther help the king realize that more needs to be done. Uh, And we're we're actually going to study that in two weeks. Now we're going to move on to a few applications. Applications for today. I have three of them for you. First, God protects his people and those who plot harm against his people receive divine justice. Now we should be very careful with the context here. In the context of God's chosen family, the descendants of Abraham, we're talking about Old Testament covenants here, Old Testament covenants. With the Jewish people, God many times allows those people to be persecuted, killed, Um, to suffer hardship because they broke the covenant with him. And so he's disciplining the nation. At other times, when outside forces attempted to destroy God's people outside of his will, like Haman, God stepped in to make a point, to publicly make a statement to the world about his righteousness, his power, his goodness. You don't mess with God's people. In the context of New Testament believers, God's plans and his will aren't always so clear-cut. God promises us that he will do what is good for us. All things will work together for the good of those who love God, for those who he chose. But it does not say that all things will work out together for your comfort and that nothing bad will ever happen to you. It says it will work out for your good, and that ultimate good is eternal life. So what what we should take away from this is not that God will not let something bad happen to you, or that God would never allow someone to harm you, or for something painful to happen to you. That's not the point here. What we should take away is that God, first off, is the avenger of wrongs, not us, and that God causes all things to work together for our good. And that's a faith step, because things don't always look so good. But God is the avenger of wrongs, not us. When, you, when we experience injustice, unfair treatment, We never resort to getting even or revenge that is outside of the Lord's will. It is childish and it is worldly. When circumstances where deception or wrong behavior or sin must be exposed, 
There are proper orders to take. We have to do so in humility. We don't elaborate when we don't have to. We don't exaggerate. We're patient on God's timing when someone wrongs us personally. God's timing is perfect. Our responsibility is to serve God and to serve others and to deal with sin when it's appropriate and in the appropriate way. But God will defend and God will bring about justice sometimes in this life and sometimes in eternity. But that's God's will, not ours. But revenge is not becoming of a believer of Christ. A few verses. Proverbs 29, 25-26. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from, from the Lord that a man gets justice. Amos 5.24, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Our second application. Violence begets violence and evil intentions turn back on themselves. We're looking at the big picture here. Now, there's some scripture that is very, very clear that the followers of God are not to be violent people. I'm going to read a couple of those. Matthew 26.51-52 And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is when Christ is being arrested. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Romans 12.17-20, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, it is not becoming, again, of a believer of Christ and a follower of Christ to be a violent person. But there's a difference between violence and righteous anger. Uh, there's a very thin line there. Of the, the great examples we have in the Bible are from Christ. So in the temple, he's casting out the thieves, overturning the tables. He's got the whip. Uh, there's a, a really important point there that he was not out of control. He was being deliberate. He had a plan, and he followed through with it. But it did not say that he was being cruel or even violent, actually, even though his... his Actions appeared violent. Uh, Think of Christ's return in Revelation. What happens when Christ comes back? He slaughters his enemies. It's very violent, right? But it's righteous. So there's a very, very thin line there. My opinion on it is that unless it's a matter of defense or defending someone who is defenseless, uh, I would doubt it. Uh, And so that's the next point. I want to make it clear that there is a difference between violence and righteous defense. Uh, there's a lot out there on this. There's a lot of opposing opinions. opinions so I'm going to read one quote, and that's all we're going to say about it today. Uh, it's from Norman Geisler. To permit murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. To allow a rape when one could have hindered it is an evil. To watch an act of cruelty to children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. In brief, not resisting evil is an evil of omission. And an evil of omission can be just as evil as an evil of commission. Any man who refuses to protect his wife and children against a violent intruder 
fails them morally. Note that it says refuses, not fails at the attempt. There's a big difference there. So what Geisler is saying here is that someone who could defend their family and refuses to, because they believe that pacifism is the way to go, that they actually are morally failing their family. Now, there is a difference here. So much here, guys. Martyrdom is different than violence. Being martyred for Christ is very different than a psycho breaking into your house for the sake of killing your whole family. Those are two very different things. So we're going to end it there, uh, that discussion. There's a lot about it. If you have concerns about this particular topic, I invite you to study it, to discuss it, to seek God's wisdom, and to reject man's wisdom. Our third application. Pride comes before the fall. Pride is a dangerous thing. It's a virus. Haman's pride led directly to his violent attitude, which led to his own violent death. Xerxes' pride led to him killing his first wife, first off, uh, led to him being blind to atrocities around him, led to him to making stupid decisions, and even possibly forgetting that he signed a death warrant for an entire people group. It's disgusting. Pride clouds our sight. It clouds our understanding. It clouds our imagination. It clouds our integrity and our ability to empathize. When we are prideful, we have an excuse for everything we do. When we're prideful, our sin is excusable to us. We have reasons for everything we do, and everyone else is wrong. When we're prideful, we gossip. We tear others down. We do not grow. Because it's all about me when I'm being prideful. Now, in nature, a seed grows. Very simple, right? Uh, when it's in the proper conditions, uh, when it has the right attention, it will grow. It will propagate. That's its purpose. However, you can leave it dormant. You could have a bag of seed that's years and years old, and then when you plant it properly, it will then grow. Pride, hate, love, gentleness, brutality, forgiveness, bitterness, all of these things and many, many others have this same attribute. They can grow. They can propagate. They can reproduce when given the right soil and the right light. Haman, Xerxes, Esther, and Mordecai, they all exhibited traits in harmony with what they nourished and fed in their lives. If we examine our own lives, our habits, our, our speech, our de demeanor, our responses, those things that you do without thinking too deeply about them, you're going to start to understand what seeds you've planted and what seeds you're letting grow. Do you have that pride in your life that it just comes out on its own? There's a problem there. That means you're letting something grow that you shouldn't. The wrong seed is growing. And you need to unplant it and put in the good seed. A few verses. Matthew 16, 24-26. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you will... If you would save your life, you must lose your life. Proverbs 11, 2 through 3. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. In Proverbs 16, 16. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now in the next chapter of Esther, we're going to see God fulfilling the rest of his plans. 
through Esther, through Mordecai, and even through Xerxes, this prideful, arrogant man. Uh, he's going to save all of his people in, in Persia and further punish those who would destroy them. Now, Esther 8 is going to be in two weeks, as I mentioned. Next week is, is Easter, so we're going to have a special service to commemorate that. Uh, if ne- next week is Easter, that means today is Palm Sunday, um, which sometimes we don't do much for. But now I'm going to change course a little bit, last few minutes, and I just want us to talk about what the meaning of this day is, what the purpose of it is, and how we might glorify God in that. So, let's talk about Palm Sunday. Uh, Luke 19, 35 through 40. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Uh, In Matthew, we see the same event described, and it mentions that some people were putting palm branches on the roads as well as their cloaks. Now, there's a significance uh, to that culture. Jesus riding a donkey. Um, First off, the donkey and the palm branches, Zechariah 9.9, it's fulfillment of a prophecy. But secondly, the, the regional custom for kings and nobles arriving in procession, if they wanted to come peacefully, if they're saying, I'm coming in peace, they rode on a donkey. And also, if people put down palm branches or had palm branches during the procession, that meant they were coming in victory. So Christ was coming in victory, and he was coming in peace. Origen said the palm is the symbol of victory in that war waged by the spirit against the flesh. Now this scene is called the triumphal entry. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entering Jerusalem as a king king come to save his people. Now the tradition of Palm Sunday started in the Jerusalem church around the 4th century. In their ceremony, they would walk to the different holy sites in the city, singing hymns and and prayers and having sermons recited. And and then uh, at the final site, which is the... So the supposed site where Christ ascended into heaven, the Gospels would be read, all the verses concerning Jesus entering into Jerusalem, like we just read in Luke 19. And then the people would re-enter the city, reciting, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the children would be carrying palm branches and olive branches, the sign of victory of our God. The point of the palm branches is to remind us of Jesus' triumph over death, Sin, the flesh, this world, and the devil. There's a lot in that symbol. Our victorious king. Now leading up to Easter, it's really, really important that we fully appreciate who Christ is. He's the conquering king of this world. And what he did for us. He died on the cross for our sins. His blood poured out to cleanse me. So that anyone who believes and accepts Christ as their savior has eternal salvation. Now, I have some palm branches. I'm going to put them in the back. What I would like to encourage everyone to do is each household or family, just take one, bring it home, put it somewhere public. Now, they're not going to last super long, not quite in season, but put it somewhere as long as they last and then explain to your children what it means. Speak reverently about our king and his triumphal entry. 
and what he did for us. And then if you have a visitor in your home and they ask, why do you have a palm branch on your mantle? Explain to them what it means. Now, we have one last song of worship. I thought it would be appropriate um, to worship our king this morning and his triumphal entry.